0: Hello, 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 and welcome back to the IFC Podcast. Thank you everyone and anyone who's still sticking around after that random hiatus that we went on. Just had some things going on that took up a lot of my time. But anyways, now we're back and there's so much to talk about. Such little time. Hopefully I can cover as much as I can and we can talk about everything that's been changing because we have a lot of things going on in the movie and TV universe that's really making waves. Now today we have a pretty crazy episode. We have a lot of news that we need to talk about first off with one of my favorite filmmakers in this entire world. We have some new TV news coming out with a bunch of new shows and some critiques on some shows I've actually got to finish. And finally, talk about some new movies I got a chance to see and a great interview with Vincent D'Onofrio. But before we get a chance to jump into the interview, I wanted to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. As some may know and as most don't, Christopher Nolan is by far my favorite filmmaker. Everything he does inspires me. Not to say that everything he makes is great. There are some issues with some of the movies that he's made. Case in point being Tenet, but that's another podcast and another conversation for another day. Essentially, in the last few weeks, Nolan had been shopping around a new script as he returns to a World War II era that centers around J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is considered the father of the atomic bomb. Now, knowing Nolan, that can mean so many things of how this movie can go. Needless to say, many studios were after this new script and it seems that Universal was the winner. They've backed the script now and are now ready to be distributors and have agreed to some crazy stipulations that apparently Nolan was shopping around since the beginning and based on his track record and the amount of money he's made and all the movies he's made for Warners, it seemed like an easy bet. Some of these things are a bit out there, even for a director of his caliber, especially considering how much control studios prefer, especially when banking so much money on a project. In agreeing to finance and distribute Nolan's next movie, Universal has agreed to give Nolan complete creative control over the entire project, a hundred million dollar budget, which is also to be matched for a marketing budget, 20% of the first dollar gross, and insanely enough, a three week blackout period before and after the release of the movie, where Universal is not allowed to release any other material or content within that time period, allowing for Nolan's movie to be the primary Universal project that would be available to any movie consumer. Now, essentially, Universal has completely won in this case. Yes, Nolan may have all the control, but Universal has just added a new filmmaker to their roster that puts them on a whole new tier. Not to say that Universal isn't already there, I mean, Universal is one of the oldest studios to still be working, and yet they still have all the popularity and a lot of original IP that they can use. I mean, if you look at Nolan's track record in his 19 years working at Warner Brothers, I mean, there's no reason to not give him everything he wanted just to add him onto your team. I mean, he has multi-billion dollar grossing movies. He has some of the best original ideas, and he's also taken a tried and true IP franchise and made it completely his own. I mean, what he's done with his version of the Batman trilogy has completely paved a new way to tell superhero and comic book movies. I mean, just look at the legacy that Heath Ledger's Joker left, not to take anything away from him, but also with Nolan behind him helping create this character. It's created this timeless movie that will most likely continue... To be an example of how nolan is a trailblazing filmmaker of this 21st century it's safe to say that warner brothers is still trying to figure out how to win the streaming wars exactly and also keep its artists and creators invested in wanting to work with them but they aren't the only company going through issues disney went through its own little scandal but even with them streaming has been coming an issue with the scarlett johansson lawsuit that came out for black widow's release on streaming and not, and not renegotiating her contract to compensate her for this lack of box office revenue for the streaming revenue. But it seems not even Disney with all their money and power are exempt from dealing with these pandemic issues and this new terrain of streaming. But to continue on this streaming conversation, Netflix has continued to dominate the competition as a streaming giant. They continue to flood us with options of movies and TV shows to watch and For some reason, they always seem to fall into the zeitgeist, and maybe that's just based off the sheer number of new shows and movies that they continue to put out there. But recently, they've come out with a new show that is transcending barriers, not only in international culture, but just popularizing foreign movies and TV shows that not too long ago were completely ignored in American media. And honestly, that's a perfect segue to talk about Star Wars Visions. If you don't know what this show is, Star Wars Visions is essentially this new Star Wars project where they allowed multiple animation studios from Japan who mostly specialize in these anime styles of drawing to tell their own original Star Wars stories. Now, that means they tell these stories just essentially set in this world, completely unrestrained by the original Star Wars canon. And it's a perfect partnership for Star Wars to allow these animation studios to tell these kind of stories, especially with the Japanese influences that Lucas from the beginning has always said influenced his original Star Wars. I mean, Jedi's are Samurais. They're essentially the heroes. Their warriors are the heroes of these stories. The unique aspect of each episode having its own drawing style to telling its own take on what Star Wars means to that animation studio is just a perfect way of lending itself to the international and worldwide reach that Star Wars has had since its inception. I mean, it started off influenced from Japanese ideals, became an American crazy pastime, only to return back to its origin of its inspiration and allow them to take it as their own and create something brand new that we can all enjoy. I'm sure a lot of people are tired of all the prequel and the new stuff that we got from Star Wars. It's nice to see this fresh idea and new take completely void and completely unrestricted by, like I said, the original Star Wars canon. Now, I don't necessarily mean to be so excited as to pretend that every episode is completely perfect and amazing. Not every episode lends itself to the story that they're trying to tell, at least for me, in terms... of coming from just an entertaining aspect of watching it, some of them were a little bit boring, but it's still nice to see this new idea and new take on Star Wars coming from, honestly, all these tried and true studios who have their own cartoons and have proven that they are they know what they're doing, so why not give them a chance to do this? As Disney continues to prosper with these new ideas, they even extend it to their other favorite child, Marvel, who has done something completely new and different with their What If series. Now, for those who don't know, the What If series is based off of a comic run that, the, that Marvel Comics ran for a minute, which essentially just took the, ass, the idea of what if something was different? What if Captain America never happened and Peggy Carter became Captain America? What if the Marvel Universe suddenly was infected with a zombie virus? All of these ideas come to pass in these comic books and have been translated onto the screen. Now the interesting thing about this what if series is that it doesn't necessarily follow the exact trajectory of the comic books. It seems that it has been it seems that it has been tailored to fit itself into our MCU that we've watched for the last 10-12 years and canonize itself. Which is very interesting considering the whole multiverse aspect that Marvel has really been pushing in this latest phase. It seems they are really doubling down and continuing on this path of focusing on magic and cosmic powers. You know, really pushing the boundaries of what Marvel always has had. And stepping away from the more grounded aspects of Captain America and earthbound wars and destruction that can come. Now we're moving on to these more powerful characters as we continue with this What If series. Move into... Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and even with the Eternals coming out next month. I really am enjoying how far-reaching Marvel is trying to make itself, and it just shows that Marvel is gonna be able to continue to expand and build their worlds and be around for a lot longer than we expect. 10 years to tell their first story, and it was just the tip of the iceberg. They've made what Thanos has done and the horrible tragedy that was Snap into essentially a punchline for the most part based off of the powers and the things that we're seeing with these new characters who are transcending realities at first we had the reality stone and now we have people who are just innately gifted with being able to do that case in point being a watch the watcher who has essentially been around the entire time but we have never even seen him till now and it's just very interesting that marvel is able to do something like this and keep the wide range of audience that it has you know before it seemed that all this cosmic comic book wonder used to really be lost for just essentially those who are completely dedicated to it or children and now it seems everybody and their mom knows who Captain America is who Thor is and what Marvel is altogether with the Eternals and Spider-Man and Doctor Strange just around the corner it's going to be I love a ride this entire Phase 4 of Marvel, and I just can't wait to see what they continue to do. I mean, we already have promises of setup for things like Blade and Morbius and so much more to come. There's no doubt in my mind that Marvel will continue to provide quality entertainment at the least for at least the next 20 years, if we still have movies and TV by then. Now, hopefully as the world begins to go back to its own sense of normalcy, we'll continue to see these projects come out in the theaters. I mean recently with the success of Shang-Chi and Venom, it seems movies are on the right path to being able to make up their money in the box office the way they previously could not during the pandemic. Now there was initially a lot of worry about releasing these movies in theaters just because of the sheer budget that goes into these movies. These movies by themselves already cost around 9 figures and you usually want to do the exact same amount or at least close to it for a marketing budget. I mean, it makes sense why these studios really want to make their money back and have been struggling with this whole theatrical run versus streaming immediately kind of thing. You want to make your profit back. You want to make your money back and you want to pay back those who help make it. So it makes sense that they've been struggling so much. But with the recent success of these last two movies, it really does seem that with the vaccine and people really wanting and trying to get back to the world, that we're going to be able to have a chance to just go back to movies regularly. You know, all of these... Especially coming in during this fall season where these last 3-4 months of the year is when movie studios start to drop their really good projects or their really special Oscar running projects. Anything that they consider to be a high success they usually want to drop around this fall season. I believe Shang-Chi was really the first movie that they didn't budge on in terms of release date so they can really test out the waters to see how things are going to happen in terms of box office release and popularity, especially for something like a Marvel movie. But there was already issues with the Venom as I believe they had about two separate moments where they had to change the release date because essentially they were worried that there weren't be enough people to go to the movie theaters and make up the money in a box office. But then you go back to the whole streaming question and you continue to tread these muddy waters that no one really knows what to do with yet. I for one am all for going back to the theaters in a safe and productive manner for society but... Watching a movie in theaters is nothing like watching it on a streaming service, nothing against streaming services, there's honestly a lot of things I like about it, and for some movies it's probably a great idea to get on a streaming service if your concerns are more so eyes and viewership versus um, return on investment. Within the last month and a half or so I've actually had the opportunity to go to theaters to see some. Really entertaining movies. The first one of them being Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Now, Everybody Talking About Jamie is a musical about a young man named Jamie who dreams of becoming a drag queen one day. And he's just surrounded by a lot of ignorant students and a very neglectful father who essentially despises him for his choice in recreational activity and his lifestyle choices but on the other side of the scale Jamie has a completely loving and accepting mother who supports all his dreams and all his wackiness giving him a home and a place to feel accepted in where he's usually feeling outed by everyone else now that's the narrative portion of the musical which is essentially all I really liked about it not to say that the musical Portions were bad, they just felt very disjointed in my opinion. It felt like I was watching a soundtrack music video intercut with the movie itself. And the songs were catchy, the dance numbers were fun, but nonetheless, it was just the tone and the, and the aesthetics that surrounded each musical number that really just took me out of the movie when I really just wanted to get back to the whole idea of what Jamie was going through and the people that came into his life to help him find himself. The other movie that I got a chance to go see was The Eyes of Tammy Faye. This was a biopic about Tammy Faye Baker and her husband Jim Baker, who during their time at the PTL Club rose to great fame just to fall from grace as their lives were just plagued with scandal and financial fraud within the PTL Club, mostly from the side of her husband Jim Baker who had some very scandalous affairs during his time and during his marriage with Tammy Faye. Now, the movie seems to focus a little bit more on Tammy, showing her humble beginnings and her genuine love and care for people as she fell in love with religion and Christianity at a young age because of the sense of community and family that it gave her that she seemed to have lacked at home with a very tumultuous relationship with her mother and stepfather. Now, the movie seems to focus a lot more on Tammy Faye, but does give a lot of narrative runaway to her husband with the fact that his misdoings and his greed are essentially what brought the kingdom down. That was the PTO Club. Now, in this movie, we have a vast array of famous actors. We have Jessica Chastain portraying Tammy Faye. We have Andrew Garfield portraying her husband, Jim Baker. And of course, we have Vincent D'Onofrio coming as senior Jerry Falwell, who was a conservative televangelist who started off as an ally to the Bakers, only to be one of the first to push for their exile from the PTL club, not only for their scandalous affairs and financial fraud, but also so he can have a bigger platform for him to push his conservative agenda that he really was famous was most famously known for. I mean, I believe the man also fought against Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement during the time. Now, Jessica Chastain's portrayal of Tammy Faye is probably the best part of this movie. She really does seem to hone in on the genuine courtiness that was Tammy Faye, along with the prosthetics and the makeup design that they had put on her. Personally, I wasn't fully aware of the Bakers or the PTL club. It was a bit before my time, but I did grow up in a somewhat of a religious household so so there was a bit of a familiarity with the baker name i knew of the televangelists, but i didn't really know the details of their lives nor the details of the scandals that seemed to dethrone them the eyes of tammy faye just goes to show you that the fall season has arrived and all of this oscar fodder is going to start coming out in the coming months jessica chastain's transformation into tammy faye makes for a great candidacy for best actress but that is a tried and true formula if one wants to get into the Oscars for an acting nominee. With that being said, let us jump over to my interview with Vincent D'Onofrio and his role as Jerry Falwell in the eyes of Tammy Faye. Hey Vincent, how's it going? How's your day going so far? It's going good, man. Thanks. You? Oh, doing well, doing well. Very excited to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with me. All right. So uh, yeah. first of all, just to, I know we have some a little time here, S- start off. Did you have any experience with uh PTO or knowing about the bakers, like before you've been ch- trying to take on this role and learning about, uh, Revan, F- uh, Falwell?
1: Um, I was only aware of them because when I was a kid, I grew up a bit in the South. Uh, actually most of my youth was in the South. And, and so we had neighbors and, and, and there's people I knew that had this, the, them on and on, and in their living rooms, you know, at times. um, um my family was different. I I didn't know at the time that we were liberal, but we were a very liberal family (laughs) in hindsight. And, and so, you know, that wasn't on in our house, but it was a, yeah, it was something that I had knowledge of, um, but not in any kind of deep way. I had to, I had to do my homework.
0: Yeah. Even myself, when I first uh, was coming across this movie, like I had knowledge of them, but I didn't have like a deep in depth, like fan kind of knowledge of them. Yeah. So I, so, being somewhat aware of them, during your research with uh your role for Reverend uh, Falwell, did you know about him in the same kind of circumstance that you knew about them? Or did you just really have to dive into him like, oh, I never knew about this guy?
1: No, it was the, it was the same. I knew very little. Um, and so, you know, when I was younger, you would have to, you know, go to the library or go to like Lincoln Center and find archives or go to, uh, video libraries and audio libraries and stuff like that. In New York, there are a few. and always had them, but things are different today. So the studio, uh, uh, you know, production can find stuff for you. And I do most of the research on my own. And, I, and that's through the internet and through, um, so through YouTube and different files that you can find. And so, so I read and about his history, about his, where he was from and his his family and his education, and then um, his beginnings in uh, as a as a uh, a minister and and then you know the research for to portray him, which is as much video and photographs and and audios that I could find so that because my my job was to do my version of Jerry Falwell in the context of servicing this script and so um i you know it was the kind of homework that involves finding his posture you know obviously the way he moves you know to 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 find his voice obviously you know the cadence in which he speaks how he articulates um his enunciation uh little things as well that um that i could find in him in the videos where I knew that if I did those things, it would remind people that had knowledge of him, of, of him. And so um, that was my, that was the work at hand. And to do all that, as I said, to service our particular story.
0: Yeah, I know it really shows that you did your homework. I mean, I was blown away by looking like a side by side of you giving the, um, the little final speech of uh, showing the accusations against Baker. Um, so when you're doing your research for a role like this and you're pretty good at playing these very muted yet aggressive roles, um, how do you create an emotional connection? I mean, especially even saying you grew up in a somewhat liberal household and you see the very conservative views of Falwell. Like, do you find any way or like, like any like meshing point between them since like it's different from you, Vincent D'Onofrio?
1: Yeah, you do. You do. Because, you know, you're in a context that allows that to happen. You know, it's not a personal Thing. It becomes, well, let's start at zero. It's your job. It's my job to, mm-hmm. to do that. Right. So I step into that wholeheartedly. And, and as I, as I know, especially in this case with, with Jessica Chastain and, and Andrew Garfield, I, I know that they are going to do the same thing. And so we are stepping into this world and we are committing ourselves to the homework that we've done. And so within that, it's fascinating because, you know, you you I'll just try to be a little more specific. You know, you walk out onto a set and it's cold, it's a cold set, you know, uh, figure, figuratively and and physically it's cold. <laughs> You know, the, the, you know there's nothing warm about it except for the people that you're working with. But the chairs are cold, props are cold. You know, there's no scene. You go into here and you start to create and you create a scene. And that scene becomes everything the world is in that moment. Like there's nothing else going on. That it's when we would do our scenes together, the three of us were in when we were in twos you know there's nothing else happening but that and so within that we are creating and so it's fa- it's a fantastic moving you know emotionally moving exp- experience it it's just is it, it, the experience is, is um in a way emotional even though you're doing a job it's uh incredible it's incredible
0: yeah it sounds like you really get it always, lost. it always it
1: always is you know it always is and when you work with actors like those two, it's you know it's going to be so
0: yeah, it, no, yeah, no, I really, surprise. yeah, I can really imagine getting lost in experience, especially working with two great actors like them, especially like seeing their performances and especially Chastain's the whole transformation into Tammy Faye. I mean, that was amazing. I, I couldn't imagine sitting across from her and being like, well, I can't even recognize her right now.
1: Yeah, it totally brings you in deeper into the scene. It's fantastic.
0: And, uh, lastly, uh, I, rec- I recognize a lot of themes in this film, and I wanted to ask your opinion on it about how. It really, it really seems and shows that like the Bakers and and Falwell really use religion as a, as a way to push their own agendas or kind of like show, like push their own opinions. Oh, what what do you think? How do you think they resonate on such a, on such a level with other people? You know, how do they create such a audience space like, like this?
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's our history in America, which actually is, comes from Europe, you know, in every society, there are people that will stand a box up and get on top of it and preach. And in, in our country, in America, that, um, from that, from people standing on boxes and preaching in the middle of a town to, to snake oil salespeople traveling from town to town and living off, um, the money of uh, from other people where they would park their wagon and sell them some kind of alcohol-based or dirty water and say it was this or that. And And meanwhile, while they're doing that, they're doing a sort of sermon the whole time about their product and their beliefs on how you need to be a better person and this will do it for you. And so the combination of those two things people preaching uh, on a, the three things, people preaching on a soapbox, snake oil salesman, and religion itself, which is a totally legitimate, obviously, uh, thing, religion. Um, it, it, ha- it formed into people gathering in tents and having sermons with ministers, and that grew into bigger tents and bigger tents. And then eventually somebody realized that, you know, you can have multi-millions of people watching in their living room and, and that's where it comes from and that's why it's successful and still is successful.
0: Well, thank you, Vincent, for all your time today. It was yeah. really great speaking with you. Um, I hope everybody gets a chance to watch this movie. It's really amazing. Um, the Eyes of Tammy Faye, everyone. And this was Vincent D'Onofrio. Thank you so much again.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
0: All right, everyone. And there you go. There's our interview with Vincent D'Onofrio. Thank you once again for everybody who's coming back to the show to listen. Thank you for sticking around with us. And I hope to stick to this new schedule where we get to, you know, talk a lot more often and talk about all the things going on on more so of a weekly basis. If any of you get the chance to see any of these movies we talked about today, please go ahead and send us an email or leave us a comment anywhere. We'd love to see what you guys thought. All right now, everyone. Talk to you next week.